Father, take over our hearts, our minds, my tongue. Father, I claim the promise of Isaiah 55 that your word always accomplishes what you send it for. Lord, may our hearts be open to that. May we be those who are looking for Jesus and seeing Jesus as revealed in all of your glory and all of your beauty in Scripture. Thank you for this privilege to look together to Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. It was a sunny day on the Mediterranean. They were looking off across the sea. The, the watchmen were, were gazing as was their job to see what was taking place on the horizon. There were various ships. Some were trader ships coming in from distant lands. Other ships uh, were, were just local fishing vessels. But suddenly, they began to look a little bit more carefully off at the horizon, and, and ships that they didn't recognize began to come. And as these ships were headed their direction, they, they began to realize that there was a lot of them coming, and, and they looked like warships, and so they began to sound the alarm. They didn't know where these ships were coming from. They didn't know who these people were. They didn't know why they were coming. Were they hostile? Were they friends? Why were they coming? This is a scene that historians tell us must have been repeated multiple times around the Mediterranean Sea as people known as the Sea People began to invade various lands around the Mediterranean. From Egypt to Palestine, they came in force and in droves throughout the second millennium before Christ. They call them the Sea Peoples, and this is what uh, History.com said about them, well, it said about an inscription that was written about them, an ancient inscription. It said they came from the sea in their warships and none could stand against them. All we know is a few inscriptions, a few reliefs about these various people that would come in from the sea and they would come in and they would attack different countries. We don't know a whole lot more about them from inscriptions. We have a few pictures of what they looked like. They wore helmets that had feathers on them. Uh, they, they came in warships. But where they came from was a long journey. Well, let's pick up the story of Abraham, and we'll see how that ties in in just a moment. Abraham, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1, you're welcome to pull out the few Bible and follow along, or your own Bible, or to follow along on the screen. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1 says, And Abraham journeyed from there to the south. From there being Mamre. That's where he was when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. You remember how he pleaded for Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, God, if there's just even just ten righteous people, wouldn't you, a righteous judge, save that city? And because of that, we're told that from, from the text, it says that God went and he drug Lot out of Sodom in order to save him. And he did it. For Abraham's sake. It shows us the power of intercessory prayer. When we pray for people, it makes a difference in the great controversy. It opens up opportunities for God to work in their lives. Well, he's seen that happen and he's seen Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed because all that was found in that city was Lot and his two daughters. And then we read that crazy story about what happened with Lot and his daughters. If you missed that, uh, it was just back three weeks ago. You can pick up the sermons on the website. So now Abraham journeys from there to the south, and he dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Where exactly is this? What land is this? Well, we pick up a little bit later in the story, actually towards the end of this. In Genesis chapter 21 and verse 34, it tells us what land this was. 
It says, and Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Right? So, so Abraham leaves Mamre and he goes down to the land of the Philistines. Now, now does that ring any bells for you in Bible history when you think about the Philistines? I mean, some of the most popular stories in the Bible. I know it because I have about five little kids' books that are written about David and Goliath. Most everybody has heard the story of David and Goliath. This giant Philistine who was attacking Israel, who was the giant challenging. And and we read about other giants, giants with a, a lot of interesting features that were Philistine. And we read about these wars that were happening with the Philistines. We read about how when the ark was taken by the Philistines, because there's this constant war between Israel and the Philistines, when it was taken to the Philistines, they put them in the temple, put the ark in the temple of Dagon. Do you remember that story at all? Now, we have inscriptions of actually what the god Dagon may have looked like. Now, this is, is a schematic here of, of where the Philistine people came from. So we believe actually that the Philistine people were the sea people. Now, there may have been others who were also the sea people, but we'll see in Amos chapter 9 and verse 7 that they came from Kaftor, which is another name for Crete. You see Crete there? Right? So Crete is over here, and we're talking about Palestine, which is right here. You see Jerusalem right there, and he's in the southern part down here. So the Philistines lived along the coastline between Palestine and Egypt. And they worshipped a god named Dagon, who was, I believe, the father of Baal, it's believed. And so Dagon, you see this? He's a fish god. So you can see how half fish, half human. You see this fish going up the part of him, has a bit of a fish head at the top, but then he also had a human head and he had human arms and hands. He's half fish, half human. Appropriate for those who are the sea people, who have come out of the sea, this, this mysterious people who have traveled some 614 miles across the Mediterranean Sea to find a new homeland. We don't know why they traveled that distance. It could have been that there was some sort of persecution. Maybe there's some sort of natural disaster that happened on Crete that drove them out of there, that brought them to Palestine. But here you have this people who've come, and they came as early as the days of Abraham. And we find that because we're reading here about a king in Gerar who was king of the Philistines. So go back in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 2. It says, now Abraham, so, so he's going to dwell among the Philistines, these people who apparently worshipped a god that was half fish, half human. They, they had these practices of worship. They were a fierce people that people all around the Mediterranean feared. Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, this is not the same story that we read about 30 years ago when Abraham went down to Egypt. And remember how that story went? It didn't turn out very well. When he went down to Egypt, he said, Hey, this is Sarah. She's my sister. And Pharaoh took Sarah into his palace. And it didn't turn out that well. And we looked at that story and we realized, man, Abraham may have been a man of faith, but sometimes he blurred the lines a little bit. Here you have 30 years later. 
Abraham's name has been changed from Abraham to Abraham. He's been given promise after promise about what God is going to do in his life. He's been given promise about how he's going to be made a blessing to the nations around him. And he goes to this nation and he tells them, hey, this is my sister. Now, if you're having a difficult time connecting the dots for your own life this morning, I want to tell you that that there is hope for me and there's hope for you. Because there's sins in my life that I haven't fully gotten the victory over. And God doesn't want to leave me that way. And God doesn't want to leave you that way. But He doesn't cast us off. He doesn't reject us when we are looking to Him in faith. He wants to lead us just like He led Abraham closer and closer to His heart of love. So we read that He tells Abimelech, He's my sister. She's my sister. And then we pick it up in verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the, the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Hold up here a second. Now, when I read this story, I think about God and I'm like, what kind of righteous judge is this? What kind of a a God is this? Can I trust Him? I mean, if I'm on His bad side and somebody else is mistreating me and doing what's wrong, does He treat me like this? So let's look into the story a little bit more. Here, He comes to Abimelech in a dream. He's revealing Himself to this Philistine king. And He says, look, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. The first thing that I take from what God tells to, to Abimelech is this. God's message to Abimelech, first of all, is that an unknown wrong is still wrong. Okay, so he has somebody who is a wife to somebody else. And that's still going to create problems. It's still going to create huge problems as we look at the fact that she is the progenitor for Jesus. An unknown wrong is still wrong. It still causes problems. And God's saying, hey, Abimelech, this isn't okay. And I'm coming to let you know that this isn't going to work out. But let's keep going in the story. Verse 4 says, But Abimelech had not come near her. He hadn't yet consummated the marriage. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Here's a a beautiful picture of of a heathen king, we might call him, who, who looks to God and says, Wait a second. You're good. Would you really destroy an innocent people? He didn't have a concept of God that, that God was capricious and did whatever He wanted and mistreated people at will. But instead, he looked at God and he said, Hang on! I'm righteous in this situation. Verse 5, Did He not say to me, She's my sister. This, this guy came and said, This is my sister. And she, even she herself, said to me, He's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. Wow. Can you imagine saying that? I mean, imagine that you're standing before Almighty God and you can say to Him, in the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. To say that to God Himself who knows everything about you. Wow. So, so, so He says this to God and, and, and God doesn't deny it. Look at what God says in verse 6. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart. Wow. 
God's actually saying that this, this heathen king actually has integrity. That, that he's, we might look at the Philistines as this, this horrible nation. And God is saying, hey, you've got integrity. I, I, I'm recognizing that. But then notice why integrity exists anywhere on the planet. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. You've got part of the picture. You recognize that that integrity is important. You're sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. But let me give you the reason for that. I've been active in your life. I've been at work in this heathen king's life in order to show him what's right and to keep him from going in the wrong path. This is good news because this tells me that God is at work in everybody's life everywhere. That He's working by the power of His Holy Spirit on on people that we may say, man, they're far gone. They're far out there. There's no hope for them. God is at work in every person's life. That's what this tells me. So we look here and we see, first of all, an unknown wrong still can be wrong. But God also tells Abimelech, you are integrous. You do have integrity. You're right about what you're saying. But then he goes on to say this, you need to recognize the source of your integrity. Oftentimes people will say, well, if going to church is so important, if following Jesus is so important, then why are people in church sometimes the way that they are? And you see mistakes happening. And then you look at people who aren't in church, who aren't following God, And they seem to be upstanding moral citizens who are nice and kind and they treat me differently. Well, this does not in any way make Abraham or people in the church okay for what they do. But this tells us that the reason that somebody is moral and upright and kind of heart is always because of God. That's the truth of Scripture. They don't even recognize it sometimes. Maybe they don't even realize. In fact, many might be angry that I would say something like that. See, I've made myself this. It has nothing to do with God. But God comes to Abimelech to help him to realize the fact that it's not based on his own actions, but God has been active in his life. Steps to Christ, page 26, says it this way, Christ is the source of every right impulse. He's the only one that can implant in the heart enmity against sin. The only reason that we could ever possibly do anything right is because of Jesus. Every desire for truth and purity, every conviction of our own sinfulness is an evidence that His Spirit is moving upon our hearts. The Holy Spirit is active everywhere and working in lands where people don't even know the name of Jesus and leading them towards Himself. Longing for them to come to a fuller realization of who He is, as we'll see here in a moment. Now, Here's the amazing thing. If you go down to Amos chapter 9 and verse 7, you read what takes place in the Philistines' experience, what brought them to the land of Palestine. Just, just look at this verse for a second. It says, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? Okay, so let's think about that for a moment. Israel is in captivity in Egypt. God comes and delivers them. He brings them through the Red Sea with all these miracles, all these miraculous signs and wonders, brings them out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. So he says, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? And we say, yeah, yeah, that was such an amazing story. And then he says this, 
the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr. Wow. This tells me that the story that I read in the Bible about God's action in salvation history is not the whole story. This tells me that, that when I get to heaven, I'm going I'm to get to find out about how God worked in the sea people's lives. Whatever affliction they were whatever was going on the island of Crete, this tells me that the same God that took Israelites out of Egypt brought Philistines all the way from Crete 614 miles to live in the promised land. Is God good? He's incredible. He's working in lives everywhere. I mean, we find very little in the Bible about what's taking place, what's taking place in China's history. But I believe that the same God has been working in everyone's life everywhere, impacting everyone as much as they're willing to be impacted. It's incredible to realize that Abimelech is there in the story of Abraham because God has been working in his people's life, although he may not have had as full of realizations of who this God was as Abraham did. So let's go back to the story and we'll keep reading through it. Genesis 20 verse 7. Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die. You and all who are yours. Right? So, an unknown wrong is still a wrong. You are integrous, Abimelech. You need to recognize the source. And now we see that he's saying, Abraham is still my prophet. Did you catch that? He said, Abraham is a, a, a prophet. He, he, he's the one, a mouthpiece for me. He's how I reveal myself to work, to the world. But hang on. Wasn't Abraham just lying? Wasn't he doing all of these terrible things? And yet God is still able to use him. And God is still able to use you. God is still able to use me. When we look in a prophet's life and we see that there are mistakes in their lives, that doesn't condemn the work that they've done. It only helps us to know that we're not looking to a prophet, but we're looking to Jesus. Abraham is still my prophet. And then he goes on to say something else. Something that's hard for us to grasp. But this heathen king probably worshipped a god like Dagon. He probably had misconceptions about who God is. And so what he says is, Abraham may not be a perfect person. He treated you wrongly here. But you still need what Abraham has. And that is a relationship with me. You need to, to come a little bit closer. You need a, a revelation of me that, that Abraham can give you. Abraham has an understanding about me that you haven't yet grasped. And so even though he's mistreating you, I want you to go to him, have him pray for you, and that's going to help you out. You need what Abraham has. Verse 8. So Abimelech arose early in the morning. You see again his character coming out. He's the righteous one in the story, while Abraham is pictured as the one who's making mistakes, who's not a good person in this story. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, told all these things in their hearing, and the men were very much, what is that word? Afraid. So they hear that God is saying this, and they say, oh no, we are in huge trouble. Now, now keep that in mind as we go through here, because we're going to Look at what happens with Abraham when he comes to Abimelech. Verse 9 continues. Whoops, sorry. Verse 9 continues. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? 
How have I offended you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to, to be done. Why are you treating me like this? You've lied to me. Verse 10, Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? What was it that led you to this? Why would you do something like this to me? I don't understand why you're treating me like this. Verse 11, Notice Abraham's answer. We're going to break this down a little bit. And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the, what does it say? The fear of God is not in this place. And they will kill me on account of my wife. Was the fear of God in this place? What did we just read when, when the dream came to Abimelech and he goes and he reveals it to his servants? How do they react? They're very much afraid. Not only is there a little bit of the fear of God, but there is much fear of God in this place. There are people who tremble when God's Word comes to them. Who are wanting, they're hungry for finding out a message from God. They want to do what God is going to tell them. So, on the one hand, he had prejudice. He looked at these people, he said, this, these foreign people, these heathen people, they don't, they don't worship God, they don't know God. And this was one thing that affected him. The second thing was he was trying to protect himself. They're going to kill me on account of my wife. So we find Abraham's path to sin. Abraham's path to this lie that he told. What was the path? First of all, he had prejudice. He looked at them and he said, there's no way that they know God. They're too far out there. They're the sea people. They're, they're worshiping Dagon. I, I, I can't trust these people. Sometimes we distance ourselves from the very people that God wants us to come close to in order to win them to Him because we're afraid of who we think they are. And we may be entirely wrong about who we think they are. But notice what we just saw at the end of verse 8. It says, and the men were very much afraid. Clearly there was the fear of God in that place. Clearly Abraham was wrong. This is one of the steps that led him to lie in the situation. But his second thing was he was fearing what man could do to him. He says, they're going to kill me. I'm afraid that, that these people are going to do me harm. He's a fearing what people can do to him. That's something else that can harm our influence, our witness, is when we're worried about what people think of us more than we're worried about what God can think of us. That's what Jesus said about the, the rulers that were afraid to follow him. It says that they, in John chapter 12, that they feared or that they, they were worried more about the praise of men than the praise of God. But also, he's wanting self-preservation. Abraham's focus is selfish. Sin always has its root in selfishness of some sort. I am trying to look out for myself rather than looking out for others. Selfishness is at the very heart of sin in our lives. It disrupts everything. And, and, and everybody knows innately that there's something beautiful about a selfless person. Somebody that always gives, that always loves. They, we recognize heroes who give their lives in service. We know that there's something good about being selfless. And yet so often we don't recognize what's wrong with selfishness. He tries to prevent his own death. He's work, worried about self-preservation. Verse 12 continues, But indeed she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. 
Okay, so you see the steps here. He says, well, first of all, uh, we looked at them and we see that they're not God-fearing people. And I'm afraid of them. They're terrifying people. And I'm going to protect myself. And not only that, but I'm going to spin the truth a little bit because really she is my sister. And I've found in my life that sin always creeps up when I can find a reason for why I need to do something. If I can reason it out and think that it's logical that, hey, this person wronged me and so it's right for me to treat them this way. If I can reason it out and say, well, look, if I don't, if I don't keep this money back from giving it, then I'm going to be in trouble myself. We can, we can begin to, to reason in lots of different ways in order to get ourselves to do something that we know is not right. Verse 13, and it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Actually, this just made it a lot worse for Abraham if you think about it. He's saying, not only did I do this to you, not only did I do this to Pharaoh 30 years ago, but every step of the way for the past 30 years, this has been my habit, and so I can't help but just to keep doing what I've been doing, and I'm stuck in a rut, and this is all I can do. Have you ever thought that way before? I remember one church board meeting. Don't worry, it wasn't here. It was at another church where a guy stood up, one elder stood up, and literally was yelling at another elder across the table And later on, rather than apologize, he said, look, I have an anger problem. And, you know, God's not going to be able to deliver that me from that until heaven. Basically, like, hey, this is who I am, and it's going to continue that way. I'm going to keep blowing up. This is just the type of person that I am. That's not the truth that I read in the Bible. That's not what God wants for your life, for my life, because he doesn't want you to be in pain. He doesn't want you to go through difficult times. He wants to bless your life with more and more of his love. So we find here prejudice, fear of man, self-preservation, spinning the truth just a little bit, and then saying, it's a habit. I've done it for 30 years. This is just the way that we agreed to make things done. And this whole thing is based on excuses. There's reasons that brought me here. There's a reason that I do this. I, 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 I do this and, and it's reasonable for me to do this. Is sin ever reasonable? Never. In fact, if you look in the Great Controversy, page 92, oftentimes people ask the question, well, well, why did Lucifer sin? Why did this brilliant, perfect being, why did sin even enter the universe in the first place? Why did Adam and Eve sin? What is the reason? Looking at the origin of evil in the Great Controversy, page 492, it says, sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. There's no reason for it. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse for it be found or cause be shown for its existence, it would cease to be sin. If we can explain why we do what we do and we feel like that's a reasonable reason for sinning, then it's not sin. But if the Bible calls it sin and you recognize that God says that's not really good for you and it's hurting you, then for you to, for me to explain that this is why I do that, this is a reasonable thing because of this, 
actually feeds the very issue and creates the problem that I have. Here's another place. The Signs of the Times, December 13, 1899. It says, it's inclination to excuse our moral defects that leads to the cultivation of sin. If I, if I find excuses, if I say, I, I just do this way because, hey, I inherited this anger issue. I inherited this, whatever it might be in your life. If we look for excuses and we try to reason it out. I remember when in high school I made some really bad choices or even just before high school. I've talked to you before about the bad experience that I had in, in, in looking at pornography in my life. And, and to begin with, there was a reason there for it. You know, well, I can't go and get married and not understand what's going on. I need, I need to, 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 to get a better idea. There's always some sort of reason that you can come up with. I told you before about how I decided to start drinking. And it was, well, hey, you know, my social life might be enhanced and maybe it would take away some of my inhibitions and you begin to reason it out and you think, well, maybe there is a good reason for doing this. But there's never a good reason for doing something that's going to cause you pain. And we know it's going to cause you pain because Jesus says that the wages of sin is death. It's a harmful, hurtful thing in our lives. When there is any excuse for a seemingly wrong act, it is not sin. Let's continue on. Uh, so we see that prejudice, fear of man, self-preservation, spinning the truth, it's a habit, and making excuses were all part of Abraham's reason for falling. Verse 14, Then Abraham Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah and his wife to him. Look at this guy. Here he is, uh, a guy who could be upset at Abraham for everything that he's done. He could be... Uh, killing Abraham and taking his wife, but instead he gives him presents just like Pharaoh did. This is somebody who's wanting to know God. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. If only Abraham had trusted to begin with that these people were God-fearing people, they might have just invited him to come and live in their land. That's what he ends up doing. And we find out that he dwells there for many days because they're so friendly. And then look at verse 16. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Now, we read later on that when Sarah dies, Abraham is able to buy a piece of property for 400 pieces of silver. I have not yet been able to afford a piece of land myself. Maybe that's because I live in California. But this is more than double the amount that it would take to buy land in order to bury your loved one. And he's just freely giving it to show that Sarah goes on to say, indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. And thus, she was rebuked. Here he is showing kindness and and generosity, and she had lied to him and led herself into this terrible situation. Verse 17, so Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his female servants. Then they for children. Wow! God answers the prayer of a lying man named Abraham who just made a horrendous mistake and he works in a heathen king's life who actually is more upstanding in this story than Abraham in answer to his prayer. That gives me a lot of hope this morning because sometimes I don't feel worthy to pray. Sometimes I don't feel like my prayers are going to make a difference. Sometimes I feel like, well, hey, let's call somebody else to pray for this person. 
Let's call in somebody more righteous than me to pray. God needs your prayers. God will answer your prayers. He answered Abraham's prayers even though he'd made mistakes in his life. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, you look at that and you say, why is God going to such drastic measures as this? Well, do you remember that just the previous chapter, before actually Genesis chapter 18, God came to Sarah and Abraham when the three came and they came past and he offers them hospitality and they come into the to, to receive all this food from Abraham, God promises that by that time the next year, they're going to have a child. We don't know how long after this story takes place. Maybe it was one month, two months. But what if it were three months later? One year later, she's going to have a child. What if Sarah at this point in time is actually pregnant with Isaac? And she's taken into Abimelech's house. Do you see why God has to step in with drastic measures? Because God is faithful to His Word. Even when we're faithless, the Bible tells us, He remains faithful. And God has promised that, that through Sarah, I am going to bless everyone in the, the planet. I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. He's basically saying, I'm going to send Jesus through Sarah. Now Sarah is in Abimelech's house. Maybe she's pregnant. Maybe not quite pregnant, but she's about. Uh, she she may have been already. Do you see the danger that this situation brought to the entire lineage and that would bring us to Jesus? This 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 was endangering not just Abraham, but it was endangering Abimelech, and it was endangering you and me. You grasp that? Because if if Sarah had not had Isaac. Jesus would not have been born in the way that God promised and the Messiah would not have been able to come and save you and I from our sins. Sin has serious consequences. Sometimes we look at it as, well, it's just a a small thing. In fact, it's half a truth. She's my sister and she actually sort of is my sister. So I'm really not, it's not that big of a deal. But in fact, it actually created a dangerous thing for the entire great controversy. And I believe that in reality, every sin in my life is the same way. Because the Bible tells me that Jesus so loved the world that He came and He gave Himself for my sins. That every sin, in the same way that Abraham's lie endangered the promised blessing of Jesus coming, every one of my sins is why Jesus went to the cross. So there is no sin that's no big deal in my life. That doesn't mean I need to focus on the sin in my life. But it does mean that I need to look to Jesus and His power to deliver me from the things that hurt me and that hurt Him. So God's plan for victory is revealed clearly in this chapter. And this is where we'll wrap it up. Number one, we see that God wants us to come to Him in dependence. Okay, So once we recognize that we have sin in our life, that was probably the first step that should be up here. Abraham needed to recognize that this is an issue. Not make excuses, not reason it out. That's what we call confession. I'm confessing that it's sin. It's a mistake that I've made. I confess that this is not right. So he needed to start there. But in order to have victory, he needed to depend upon God. And we see that 
where Abimelech is told by God himself, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. God is able to keep us from sinning. If we look to Him, He wants to deliver us in a way that makes less tension in our relationships, less hatred, less... Sin is a lack of love. And so why wouldn't I want to look to the One who can deliver me from all of the lack of love in my life? So we can find victory in Christ alone. He's the source of every right impulse. But we also see from this story that belief is the path for victory. If Abraham had just remembered the promises, back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, when God shows up to him, he says this, Do not be afraid, Abram. You have all these heathen nations surrounding you, but do not be afraid. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. I'm going to shield you. Abraham forgot the promises of God, and he's looking for how to shield himself rather than looking to God as his shield. I am your shield. He'd forgotten the promises of God. He forgot this promise too that we just talked a little bit about. The Lord said in Genesis chapter 18 verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah your wife shall have a son. He had forgotten this and he's ready to give his wife off to Abimelech as some sort of alliance or something that they were doing. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us this, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. The, the, the promises that are in the Bible throughout Scripture are exceedingly great and they're exceedingly precious. They're delightful. They're sweeter than honey, the psalmist says. And they revive our heart and they transform our lives. Look at what it goes on to say. Exceedingly great precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. It's through the power that's revealed in these pages as we fix our eyes on Jesus and the promises that are given to us in Him that we are delivered from all the baggage of our lives that tears us down, that hurts us and hurts the people around us. So I want to encourage you. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep pursuing 2020 vision for Jesus because we've got to depend upon Him and we've got to depend upon Him through His Word. And it's crucial that we do this because sin is hurtful and it ultimately hurts the heart of God. And I don't want to do that anymore. I want to have more and more of Jesus in my life. So we see dependence. We see belief. And then we also see prayer. I believe that that God had a plan for Abraham that rather than going in there trying to figure out how to defend himself, what God really wanted him to do was to come in there and to pray for those who might look like his enemies in his life. This is 20 verse 7 says, and he will pray for you and you shall live. You hear God saying, I I want for Abraham to learn that he needs to pray for those that he thinks are godless and not God-fearing. And then verse 17, so Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. Prayer is powerful in connecting us to the source that brings us victory. So I want to encourage you to come out to the 10 days of prayer. 
It starts on Wednesday night. You see here a little picture of corporate prayer happening. You see that, that Abimelech comes and he asks Abraham, hey, you got to pray for me. God's saying that I'm in big trouble unless you pray for me. And so they got together and they prayed. There's power in your personal, private life, and there's also power when you pray together. So starting this Wednesday night, we're going to have the powerful opportunity to, to learn together how to pray more effectively, and we're going to be focusing on how to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's going to start Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. It'll be from 7 to 8 p.m. each night for 10 days. How many of you think you can come to, to, to some of those nights, right? Come to as many of them as you can. I promise that God is going to do something good for you. I, I don't need to promise that. He promises that when we seek Him together, that He is present there. So we see that God's path to victory is through dependence, through belief. Belief that comes through the Word of God, through focusing on Scripture, and through taking time in prayer. I encourage you to come out to the 10 days of prayer. I encourage you to keep looking to the One who can deliver you from all of these things. Uh, Because this is crucial and vital for our lives in the times that we're living in. You know, God sends trials into people's lives. We can take that down if you'd like. God sends trials into our lives. And, and sometimes I picture trials, I picture discipline, I picture these things as, as something that, that God somehow delights to do this to me in my life. I, I read a story like this and I think of God as saying, why is God inflicting this on Abimelech and then making Abraham's life hard? And, and why doesn't God just make my life so much easier? Why is it so difficult? But becoming a dad is beginning to help me recognize how God operates just just a tiny little bit more. It was recently that that uh, some that we would consider as somewhat mentors in parenting told us, you know, your daughters are actually getting ready for some discipline. Like, oh, no way, not my daughters. My daughters are perfect. They're fine. Why would they need some discipline? And I just said, you know, you might want to start thinking about this. So Leah and I were thinking about it. We're praying out about it. And we're, we realized that they recognized when, when, when we call their name, they would turn and look at us. So obviously they're beginning to comprehend and understand things. But that was the last thing in the world I ever wanted to do. Now in our house, there's a, a gas fireplace. And, and that's a place that, that we know is dangerous for our baby. So we would always go and we'd pick them up and we'd take them away from there. And we'd try to keep them from, from touching the fireplace. But we decided, you know, we don't want to have to have a baby gate around our fireplace for the entire time that they're able to, 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 to go up and touch it. We need to train them. And so that was one of the things that we decided, hey, you can't go up and touch the fireplace. At first, it seemed absolutely crazy to me because we'd say, hey, Abby, stay away from the fireplace. She's in here. She's going to wonder why I'm saying this right now. <laughs> At first, they didn't really understand. They'd look when we called their name, and then they'd go ahead and they'd touch it. And the most painful thing to a dad in the world is to walk up to that cute little hand, give it a little flick, not causing any serious pain, but see her look at me and to start crying, not quite understanding what's going on, but just wanting her to trust that I have her best in mind, wanting her to know that I'm only asking her to obey because it's for her own good. And you know, they're starting to get it. <laughs> we'll say, Abby, do not go near the fireplace. And she'll hold up her hand. <laughs> and then she'll turn away and go the other. The same with Livy. We begin to get it and we recognize 
that this is a loving person who cares about me and who wants what's best for my life. This is what God is longing for you and I to realize more and more every day. He doesn't arbitrarily give us commands. He doesn't arbitrarily give us trials in our life. But all of these things are there because He loves us and He doesn't want us to experience the pain and suffering that sin brings. I don't know about you, but I want to depend upon a God like that more. I want to believe in Him more. And I want to pray to Him more. If that's your desire this morning, I just want to invite you to stand with me as we pray. God, thank You for the amazing God of love that You are. To see You step into lives and histories. To know that You're the God who brought the Philistines all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. To know that You're the God who will direct our destiny as well. To know that You're a God who who gives us commands not to hurt us, but to help us to make our lives better. That You're a God who will step in even when we make mistakes, even when we feel unworthy, that You'll answer our prayers. God, we want to depend upon You. We want to believe in You. And we want to have communion with You through prayer. Father, help us to take the time for that every day. Help us to to be empowered through the ten days of prayer as we worship You together in prayer. Father, may we fix our eyes on Jesus in 2020. May we be drawn closer to You every day. May we grow to love You and to hate the things that hurt You and that hurt us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.